0: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's been a while since I've been able to see a lot of you, and I always do look forward to the times where I can actually come on a Sunday and participate in the service just because I get to see a few of you. But uh, on behalf of Joanna and Evelyn and myself, we just really look forward to the day that we can just all be together again. We can see all of you. Uh, but for this particular Lord's Day, I get the privilege of exploring with you all what the Scriptures have to say about deacons now if I were to ask everybody who's listening right now what is a deacon I I would imagine that I would get a fair range of responses there but to take that even a little bit of a step further if I were to reach out to all the churches in our area email the leadership of each church and ask them what are deacons I would probably get an even wider range of responses there because for some churches Deacons are the finance team or the church building maintenance crew. Whatever needs to be done where you don't have to touch the word of God, that's what the deacons do. For other churches, the deacons are the governing body of the church. The pastors, they handle the teaching and the counseling duties, but the deacons, they make all the actual decisions at the church. Now, if we look at the word for deacon in the New Testament, we find something interesting. The word that is sometimes translated deacon in our English Bibles, diakonos, just means servant. There isn't a separate word for a general servant and for the office of deacon, but our translations will sometimes translate it servant, and other times they will give us the transliterated word deacon instead. But there aren't two separate words there. It's just one word meaning servant. So some churches would take this and say that there is no such thing as the office of deacon, just a general term for people who serve the church, and so they can throw the term deacon around haphazardly, just to describe anyone involved in any kind of service in any kind of capacity. I'm the deacon of Sunday morning yum-yums, or she's the nursery deacon, or I'm the deacon of taking out the trash, and they're the deacons of bulletins. So it turns out that doing a survey of churches to see what they think isn't the best way to figure out what to make of a deacon in a New Testament church. So this morning we're gonna do what we should have done all along and consider what God through his scriptures tell us about the office of deacon in his church. And as you all know, for the past few weeks we've been going through a series through First Timothy uh, on gospel leadership. Mark set the foundation for us in First Timothy one. And then Ted highlighted for us the priority of gospel-driven prayer. Garrett then focused on the importance of properly ordered roles within the church, specifically for the women of the church. And then Peter last week walked us through the qualifications for elders in the local church. And each week, we've taken the time to highlight the context for you, and for good reason. Um, The teaching team, we've been meeting weekly to ensure accountability in handling the scriptures And one thing that Mark has been very diligent to remind us all each time is that each of the passages that we've been bringing before you these past few Sundays, they exist in a gospel context. And it's critical to not separate passages like this one from their gospel context. Otherwise, we could just start digging into qualifications and then we can turn them into something that Christ never intended. Rather than applying this as a passage, as a means of protecting the church, and providing an example of Christ-likeness, we in our flesh might twist this list of qualifications to become a means of hiding behind words or a source of division in the church, or a means of imposing our own standards upon the church, much in the same way that the Pharisees did with the Old Testament law. And this is precisely the kind of thing that Paul warns Timothy of when describing certain men who were devoted to myths and endless genealogies, and quarrels over words. We can turn this passage into a debate where we can treat it like Christ intended us to by receiving it within the gospel context that it exists in. And this is something that we all need to be reminded of and no one more than myself. So before we handle the word of God, let's open in prayer. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for the sound words that you have given to us, Lord, in your word. And Father, I just pray that you would help us, that you would give us your spirit to understand the words that you have for us, Lord, because we in our flesh, we know we can take your sound words and twist them into something that does not come from you, Lord. So I pray that you would protect me from that this morning, and as we consider the words that you have for us, this text, also other texts, Lord, um, that we read in our own time in your word, I just pray that we wouldn't use them as a means for dividing us but that we would really see them for what they are loving words from a good god who cares for us and desires to provide for us in every way that you can so we thank you for these words and i pray that you would guide our time today in jesus name amen so the epistle of first timothy it's a letter that the apostle paul wrote to timothy who was shepherding the church of ephesus at the time and at the time of writing the churches have been established in different areas, and the church overall has thrived and matured, but it has still depended a lot on the care of and the oversight directly from the apostles. And now, we're nearing the end of the apostolic age. What does that mean? It means that even though the churches are up and running now, the apostles are getting old. This means that the apostles, the de facto authoritative shepherds who spoke as ambassadors of Christ's words through their teaching, they would no longer be around to defend the church from false doctrine, which was already infiltrating the church and affecting people as certain persons were gaining prominence and teaching different doctrine, promoting speculations rather than stewarding the gospel truth of God. The church is supposed to be a pillar and a buttress for the truth, as Paul tells Timothy later in this book. So it's critical that the right people are leading the church, especially in a world where the apostles would no longer be around. And this means more than just making sure that the apostles themselves handpicked the right successors to them, but it meant identifying and establishing a framework for how to identify gospel leadership for the church many generations after they're gone. So Paul is giving Timothy, and by extension, New Testament churches in general, including ours, instruction on how to identify godly leadership to ensure that the church continues to be shepherded and protected by the right kind of leadership. So what is the right kind of leadership? We see it in 1 Timothy, but not by jumping into 1 Timothy 3 on elders and deacons, as I myself have been prone to do but first by bathing ourselves in First Timothy 1. It's gospel leadership. And at the risk of oversimplifying gospel leadership, it really boils down to two main things. Sound gospel doctrine and sound gospel character. And only when you have people who are characterized by sound gospel doctrine and sound gospel character do you have a church that is able to fulfill its duty as the pillar and the buttress for God's truth. So we've seen this throughout of the gospel since the start of Paul's letter, when he ties his own ministry to the testimony of the gospel in his life. And we've seen it in the call for men to lift holy hands in prayer for the salvation of all men. And we've seen it in the proper order of men's and women's roles in the church. And we've seen it in the qualifications for elders. And I hope I'm faithful to make that clear in our passage for today as we discuss the qualifications for deacons. So let's read our passage together. We'll be focusing on 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. But let's read starting from verse 1 of 1 Timothy 3, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Though so our first point today is the role of deacons. Our passage for today, beginning in verse 8, starts off with the word likewise, which gives us a clue on how we should think about deacons, how they relate to elders, and also how they relate to the rest of the saints within the church body. In some ways, they are like elders, in that they are distinctly called out and identified in a certain office, and they're also like elders in that both groups are given specific qualifications. But as much as it serves to highlight the points of similarity between the two offices, it also serves as a break in the text to distinguish that now we're talking about a different group of people. So deacons are like elders, but they are not elders. They're similar to elders in character qualifications, but distinct from elders in their role. Deacons are servants. And as we discussed earlier, this is inherent in the word deacon itself. The word defines the role for us. Culturally, the word diakonos was someone who was generally associated with menial tasks, such as waiting on tables. So, then why do we think that there's a distinction between the office of deacon and someone who just serves the church as we all should be doing? What is the difference between a recognized deacon and anyone else serving in ministry? Uh, one scripture that highlights the distinction for us is Philippians 1. 1 where Paul begins his letter to the Philippians by greeting all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Here, deacons are called out separately and not just assumed alongside the rest of the saints. And it's also telling that the deacons are mentioned alongside overseers here, just like they are in our First Timothy 3 passage. But another place I'd like you to turn is Acts 6. And this is the passage that Mark read for us earlier. So, if you can actually turn there, in Acts 6, we see a similar pairing between those who are overseeing the church at the time, the apostles, and those who are designated for service. So, let's turn to Acts 6, starting in verse 1. Acts 6, starting in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, the words elder and deacon are not specifically used here, but we see that same pairing between the apostles and the men that were selected to help them with the service in the church. So frequently, Acts 6 is seen as the prototype ...for how the roles of elder and deacon are connected and yet distinct. On the one hand, you have those who oversee the church and devote themselves to the word and prayer. And on the other hand, you have those that administer care to the church and their needs... ...allowing the overseers to devote themselves to the word and prayer. You see, it's at this point in the development of the church, people were getting saved... ...and numbers were, or people were getting added to their numbers every day... There came the need for the church to recognize certain people within the church to carry out the ministry needs of the church. And the role of deacon was born out of this. But I'd like you all to take a look at the text again with me and answer this question. What criteria was used to select and identify these seven men? In verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men, ...who are good at serving tables... ...because that's what we need them to do here, right? No. Who are really good at coordination... ...and keeping things tracked on the spreadsheet? No. So what were the criteria? Seven men of good repute... ...full of the, wisdom, full of the spirits and of wisdom. The selection of these men to the duty of service... ...was not about their administrative ability... And little was said about their skill at the task, but it said everything about their character and about their reputation. So identifying deacons isn't primarily about identifying the most administratively skilled who can knock the task out of the park. But it's about identifying men of the right character. And this is really different from how the world operates, isn't it? The world would ask, what does reputation or wisdom or being spirit-filled have anything to do with serving tables. Anyone can serve tables. Well, in God's church, good repute, wisdom, and being spirit-filled has everything to do with serving tables. A deacon's character is not secondary to his competence. A deacon's character is not secondary to his competence. And this means that when you're identifying deacons, you don't first look for all the people who are skilled at what they do, And then once you have that list, then filter them through these qualifications to make sure that they check all the boxes. That's the opposite way. These qualifications should not be treated like the afterthought. So we see God's priority here. That character is not just necessary for the big ticket items, like teaching and counseling. And oh, for those, you have to ensure that men of character have those big roles like teaching. Well, yes, you do. But this extends this necessity of good character extends to service in the church as well, whatever task that might entail, to assist the elders in fulfilling the mission of the church. And some of you might point out, oh, these seven guys in Acts 6, they're not technically deacons, because this happened before the office of deacon was established. Or some might say that, well, Acts is a narrative. You can't take this to be a prescription of how the church is to identify deacons now. Well, let's go back to 1 Timothy 3 then how much time does paul spend talking about the task of deacons and what they're supposed to do making sure that when you're picking your deacons that they are skilled at those tasks he doesn't talk about it that much and if you read through these qualifications they don't describe the deacon's skill at a task but they describe their character and it's not that skill and competence isn't important But Paul's primary concern, and what would protect and strengthen the church in Ephesus most, isn't by having deacons that are the most skilled at serving tables, but it's by having deacons whose hearts and lives are transformed by the gospel. And that's not just Paul. As an apostle writing scripture, Paul's words mirror God's heart as well. And we see this. When God sets apart people for his service, he primarily looks at the heart. Rather than their external appearance or ability, we see this when the Lord selects a shepherd boy to be king over his people, when He chooses uneducated fishermen to follow him, and now, as he identifies his, instructs his church on how to identify deacons for service. So what kind of character should deacons have, and how's it different from elders and here's a shocker for you: if you compare the qualifications of deacon. Here, with the qualifications of elder directly before it, they largely describe the same character. The kind of man described in verses 1 through 7 is the same kind of person described in verses 8 and on. So a deacon's role is distinct from the elders, but their character is the same. The qualifications for deacons are actually a continuation of the same thought process around this overall topic of qualifications for gospel leadership. Paul is drawing an intentional and direct connection between the necessity for elders to be qualified and for deacons to be qualified. So much so that Paul doesn't even bother using a verb here. He just continues getting the same mileage out of the same verb he's been using all the way back since verse 2 to describe the qualifications for elders. This has been one long idea for him. So for those of you who were at Lagos last year, you recall that in Ephesians 5, Paul calls Ephesians to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then proceeds to say, wives to your husbands. He doesn't choose to repeat the word submit there because his instruction for wives was meant to be a continuation of this theme of submission that he already introduced, specifying one of the ways that submission is to be expressed within the church. And this passage follows a similar pattern. Elders must be this. Deacons, this. It's all essentially one idea of the importance of being qualified with different emphases for different groups. Deacons are not called to a lesser godliness than the elders, just a different emphasis that are appropriate for their different functions. And for those of you, for everyone in the church, those of you who are not elders and those of you who are not deacons, you're not called to a lesser godliness either. It's the same godliness, but the application of that godliness will look a bit different. So let's start digging into these qualifications. Um, in verses 8 to 10, we see the proven character of deacons. And that's our second point for today, the proven character of deacons. Firstly, he is dignified. And this says the idea of having a serious to him that invites respect from others. There is like a gravitas or a weightiness to his character. And this doesn't mean that a deacon doesn't have a personality and he never laughs and he never has any fun. But life is not a joke or a game to him. He doesn't treat spiritual matters flippantly. And he treats things with the appropriate seriousness. So if this man leads a Bible study, he doesn't turn it into an opportunity for stand-up comedy. He doesn't approach weighty matters irreverently. An important aspect of being dignified is the, matter in which, the manner in which he is regarded by others. So a deacon should not be known as immature, but he must be respected by the congregation. His reputation matters. Remember in Acts 6, one of the requirements was that the seven men be men of good repute. And some might argue that it shouldn't matter what people think of a deacon as long as he's right in his own heart before God. Well, that is all well and good until we remember that his heart might be deceived, because we know the heart does that. A deacon's character is more than a private matter between himself and God. What the congregation thinks matters, because the spiritual growth of the congregation matters. Would members of Christ's flock, one of Christ's little ones, would they stumble by having the character of their Lord misrepresented by a deacon? Often, when there are a list like the one we have, the first item in the list is meant to either indicate the priority of the, f- the first item or as a kind of overarching summation of the following items. And the, the items that follow are aspects or examples of the first. So dignified is the overarching qualification that encompasses the ones that follow. Dignified is parallel to how above reproach was used of the elders, and how all the qualifications listed under the elder portion are aspects of what it means to be above reproach. And if we look at the following qualifications here, they all describe certain vices that would bring a deacon's character into disrepute and compromise his dignity. There would be something wrong if a deacon was widely known by the whole congregation To be hot-headed or immature, given over devices, telling half-truths, or known for his greed. It doesn't matter if he's good at serving tables. If he regularly makes promises that he can't keep, he has a drinking problem, or he's running a pyramid scheme on the side. So he's not double-tongued. Double-tongued is a really good way to put it. Imagine if someone had two tongues, and one tongue is saying things outwardly to people while the other tongue is saying what he really means, but to different people. This idea of being double-tongued obviously encompasses lying outright, but it also can encompass any speech that is intended to mislead in some way. A deacon's speech should not be manipulative or deceptive, and it shouldn't even be insincere. He should mean what he says, and he should be consistent in what he says. Out of the heart the mouth speaks. So lying, deceptive, or insincere words reveal a lying, deceptive, and insincere heart. They say that slander is saying things behind someone's back that you would never say to their face, and that flattery is saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. Both are insincere, manipulative, or deceptive, and definitely double-tongued. Next, he is not addicted to much wine. Uh, This word for addicted here means to pay close attention to something to the extent that we are preoccupied with it or infatuated with it to a large degree. It's to turn your mind towards that thing, and in this case, it's wine. And this doesn't mean that a deacon can't drink wine or an alcoholic beverage, but is he excessively preoccupied with it? Is there a habitual and uncontrolled nature to his drinking? It may not be wrong to have a drink, but allowing it to influence your mind indicates an addiction. I've heard some people say that they have an addictive personality. And what they mean by that is that they get consumed by something and they can't stop obsessing over that thing. Well, a deacon shouldn't have an addictive personality, but rather a temperate, self-controlled, and restrained character. I've often also heard this specific qualification rephrased as, it's okay to drink as long as you don't get drunk. And while I do believe this passage does indicate that a deacon must not get drunk, we must also treat it, we also cannot treat it like a license to drink either, understanding that there are other scriptural principles that are governing our lives, such as not stumbling another brother. And also remember that this qualification falls under the overarching north star of being dignified. So even if the deacon doesn't drink enough to get drunk, even if he feels that it's not an idol for him and he has it under control, does he drink enough where it affects the respect that the congregation has for him? Next, the deacon is not greedy for dishonest gain. This is not a man who would be tempted to take from the money bag if he were placed in charge of it. Now, practically speaking, many times deacons are given the responsibility for handling the church funds and distributing them to those who are needy within the church. So a deacon who is greedy for dishonest gain would be placed in a situation where he could compromise the work of the church and its um, efforts to care for its people. But more so than just the practical implications here, there are the heart implications. Someone who's greedy for dishonest gain is not dignified. And bottom line, he's not controlled by Christ. But he's controlled by the love of money. And he's not acting in a manner that's transformed by the gospel. So even if practically speaking, you don't put this guy in charge of the finances, you don't give him the money bag, and he's serving in something unrelated like building maintenance, he still must be free from the greed of dishonest gain. Because what that means his character and his dignity next the deacon is to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience in this one statement is both the importance of sound doctrine and also the importance of a life that proceeds from that sound doctrine he has to hold the mystery of the faith and the mystery of the faith is speaking of what is revealed in christ in the new testament a mystery is a word frequently used by Paul when he's talking about something that was previously hidden, but now has been revealed. And Paul uses it to refer to aspects of truth, doctrine, God's plan of salvation, or the nature of his kingdom, that were not fully revealed until the New Testament. So the deacon must hold these truths. He needs to have sound doctrine. Knowing the truth of scripture isn't only reserved to those who have the responsibility to teach it, but for those who are called to serve as well. But that's just part of it. It's not enough to know sound doctrine so that you can answer the questions in the next Bible trivia challenge. He needs to be able to have a clear conscience before it. This means that his life needs to be changed and to be consistent with the sound doctrine that he professes to know. Because that's the nature of the truth that is revealed in the gospel. It's the truth that has demands on the way that you live your life. And if you claim to know this gospel, if you claim to hold the mystery of the faith as revealed in scripture, and your life doesn't reflect that truth, your conscience is not clear. Your conscience is a mechanism that God has graciously given you that testifies to yourself whether your life is consistent with your doctrine. And Christ's gospel truth is a truth that transforms a life. So if your life isn't transformed, then do you really have the gospel of Christ in your heart? And we've stressed this throughout this series. True doctrine is essential because there were false teachers who were gaining prominence in the church. But their doctrine wasn't accompanied by a transformed life. And the authenticity of their doctrine is either proven or disproven by the presence or the absence of the spirit-filled transformation in their life. So a deacon must know the content of the revealed scriptures, and he has to exhibit the character that this knowledge demands of his life. So our next point, verse 10. Everything that we've been discussing, all of these things are things that the church needs to affirm. So a pop quiz, thinking back to Act 6, without turning there because this is a quiz. Who selected the men who would be appointed the task of distributing equitably to the widows in the congregation? Who chose the men who would be appointed the task of distributing equitably to the widows in the congregation? And if you'll remember, it says that they gathered the full number of the disciples and told them to pick from among themselves men who fit the qualifications that the apostles outlined. The whole church was involved in evaluating these men and affirming whether they were qualified or not. The apostles were certainly involved directing the process, but it was the responsibility of the church as a whole to examine and affirm these men's character. That leads us to our next qualification. Before deacons can serve as deacons, or continue to serve as deacons for that matter, they must be tested and they must be proven blameless. There needs to be a validation of the deacon before they are to serve as deacons and if they are to continue serving as deacons. Someone can put on a front for a season, someone can have the appearance of godliness in the short term. But their character will be proven and validated as the church has time to know them in different contexts, in different circumstances. Over time, the true character will be either affirmed or exposed. In the hands of a sovereign God, the crucible of real life lived among one another will reveal what's really in someone's heart. And note that it doesn't say to test the deacons, but let them be tested. This is a testing or an examination that happens as the congregation observes the ongoing life of the deacon. It's not as if yearly we hold these annual deacon trials where we have a Bible quiz and an obstacle course and just throw tests at prospective deacons and grade how well they do. The tense indicates that this is a passive ongoing evaluation where the church body observes the fruit and outcome of a man's life over time to gain a more proven judgment of who he is. And this doesn't stop once someone is formally recognized as a deacon, but also applies as they are serving as deacons. An ongoing period of time, it also gives us a chance to allow the Lord's testing to come upon his life. Testing reveals what we're made of. Uh, for example, back in college, my fellowship group decided to have a competition on who could design the best egg container that could protect an egg when thrown off the highest building on campus. We were nerdy. Full stop. People designed these contraptions based on what they thought would happen when subjected to the blunt force of falling many stories onto the hard concrete. But the bottom line was you couldn't get a true sense of how well made your contraption was until you subjected it to the real-life pressure of a 13-story drop and observe the outcome. In a similar manner, the Lord graciously brings difficulty to stretch someone's faith to squeeze them, to drop them off a 13-story building, metaphorically, of course, so that we can see what comes out. It's hard to test someone's true character when you only see them when things are going well. You don't know what a man's house is built on until the storms come and they beat against that house. Deacons should be continually observed, and not in a creepy way, We as a church aren't called to follow deacons around and watch them. But as you live your lives in the same church with this person, you see how they handle the good times. You see how they handle the difficulty as you interact with them. And you can affirm that they remain blameless. So this word blameless, it's very much like above reproach that was used to describe the elders in verse 2. It's a synonym. In the same way, this doesn't mean that a deacon is without sin, that he's perfect, but what it conveys is that after observing this man's life, there's nothing in particular that anyone can bring as a reproach or blemish on his character. At this point, the passage transitions once again. In verse 11, Paul uses the same word likewise to introduce another group in the church. Now, verse 11 in the ESV reads their wives, but a translation that is more literal to the original text like the NASB will simply say women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded. And as such, we'll be taking what the original text gives us. The ministry of deacons in a local church is not restricted to men, but these women referred to in verse 11 are women who are integrally involved in the deacon ministry of the local church, alongside the men. And as such, the character of these women is vitally important as well. So much so that Paul chooses to specifically highlight their qualifications here. So our next point here is the character of women in the deacon's ministry, which is outlined in verse 11. The qualifications for these women closely mirror the qualifications for male deacons, beginning with this exact same overarching requirement to be dignified. This is the same word. There's no difference. They should display the same seriousness of character as their male counterparts. And like the male deacons, they need to exhibit a character that would invite respect from the congregation. And just like the deacon qualifications highlight an aspect of being dignified through their speech by not being double-tongued, women here are called to not be slanderers. And the word for slanderers here is a little scary. It's diabolos, which is a word used to refer to the devil himself, who is the supreme slanderer. They are not to be like the devil. I would hope not. But the connection is there. If she engages in slander or malicious gossip, she is quite literally behaving like Diabolos, the devil. For both men and women in the deacon ministry need to have control over their tongue. But one of the ways that this may be more commonly expressed here for women is through slander or malicious gossip. And it's highlighted here. She's also called to be sober-minded. And again, this is similar to the concept of being not addicted to wine. But this is a more general sobriety of mind that can be applicable to many different contexts. You can think of this as being temperate, self-controlled, clear-headed, showing restraint in her behavior. Just like we describe not being addicted to wine as someone whose mind is not unduly influenced or preoccupied with wine, someone who is sober-minded is not... Someone who will be controlled by her emotions or any other thing other than Christ. And lastly, she is faithful in all things. There are no areas that she's not faithful in. There needs to be a consistency and reliability in the different roles and responsibilities that she's given from God. This means that there are no areas of her life that are neglected or unfulfilled. Now, it doesn't mean that she's perfect at everything, and it doesn't mean that she does everything. This isn't talking about that mythical woman who can do it all, but this is the woman who is faithful with all. The woman who is a superstar in church ministry, and yet her home is neglected, isn't being faithful in all things. I'm not saying that she shouldn't strive for excellence in the things that she does. She should, but I'm saying that she can't do that at the expense of, of the faithfulness in the things that the Lord is calling her to do. And let me broaden this a bit too. And I bring this up because I know that sometimes if our pursuit of ever more excellence or performance in some area is at the expense of faithfulness in another role that the Lord has given us, we really need to examine ourselves and to examine whether Christ is motivating our actions or is pride motivating our actions Or is anxiety motivating our actions? Or is the approval of man motivating our actions? These are questions for personal reflection that I think we should all ask ourselves periodically. So going back to these, the qualifications for these women in deacon ministry may be fairly short. We've got four explicit line items here. But in no way does this mean that women are called to a lesser godliness either. They're not called to a lesser character. These qualifications are meant to exemplify a character that is given over to and controlled by Christ. Our next point in verse 12, our passage then shifts to talking about the deacon's home. Our next point there is, for those of you who are taking notes, it's the home life of deacons, the home life of deacons. A deacon's family life is a crucial test of his character. The deacon is firstly to be the husband of one wife. And this is the exact same phrase as used to describe the elders. He is a one-woman man. And this is speaking of his moral character, not necessarily of his marital status. So this means that a deacon doesn't have to be married. He can still have the moral character of a one-woman man, even while single. And it also doesn't disqualify a man who might have gotten remarried if he lost his former wife due to death, abandonment, or marital and unfaithfulness. But if he is currently married, there can be no question that the only woman that he is devoted to is his wife. This goes down to the heart. Christ himself says that even if he so much as looks at a woman with lustful intent in his heart, he has committed adultery. And that applies to both married and unmarried men. The deacon, married or not, needs to be this kind of man. And not only in action, but in his thought and in his desire as well. He must also manage his children and household well. Another similarity to the qualifications of overseer. So we see that managing your household and your children isn't just a test of managerial ability because deacons aren't called specifically to be overseers in the same manner that the elders are called to. But it tells us that a man's home and his home life reveals something about his character and whether or not he has the kind of character that is fit to serve in God's church. Peter mentioned this last week, and I think it's worth stating again. Having children who are just behaving like children is not a disqualification for a deacon. And I'm not just saying that because I'm trying to protect myself in case Evelyn takes a turn for the worst when she hits her terrible twos. All children are going to behave like children. None of our kids are born saved and obedient. Elders and deacons are not being evaluated on how good of an actor their children can be and on how good of a performance they can give on Sunday mornings. But the question is, Is this man, is he a father who is being faithful in his God-given responsibilities at home? Or is he neglecting those responsibilities? That tells us a lot about his fitness to serve in God's church. Our last point for today is the rewards for deacons. And we find this in verse 13. The rewards for deacons. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Earlier, I mentioned that the term that we use for deacons, diakonos, was a word used that was was colloquially used to describe someone who performed menial tasks. Outside of the context of the church, you wouldn't use this as a term of honor, but to describe someone who did lower class, more humble work. Waiting on tables and serving food comes to mind. It was a word that was associated with a lower social standing. It's not something that you really go out and brag about. But Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, completely flips this worldly concept of a diakonos, or a servant, upside down. And he promises to the deacon who serves well that he will have a good standing completely the opposite of what the world would think of a diakonos or a deacon. A good standing here means someone with a high status or high rank. It refers to someone who's been elevated or put on a higher step or a pedestal even, deserving of honor and respect and to be treated as an example to follow. This reminds me of James 4.10, which says, Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Those who serve well as deacons in humble service will be exalted. And you see this paradigm throughout the scriptures. In the kingdom of God, the first will be last and the last will be first. It is the lowly, the humble, the servants, the least in the kingdom of the world who will then be exalted and lifted up. Similarly, those who serve humbly as deacons may have a low standing in the world. But in God's kingdom, they have a high standing. Who does this remind you of? Taking the form of a servant, humbling himself, even to the point of death, despised and rejected by men, bearing our griefs, pierced for our transgressions. And what did God do for him? But God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is not just a step above but above every name our suffering servant our savior our lord jesus christ and earlier i said that the men in identified in act six were the prototype for what would become deacons but there is an example that goes even further back than act six and that's christ as you see, the foundation for both the foundation for both the character of those who will serve as Christ's shepherds in the church, and those who will serve in the church as servants, is the one man who is both the good shepherd and the suffering servant. The gospel of Christ is core to every role and function within the church. Such that if you lose sight of Christ, you lose the whole intention or these roles in the church. And the church can no longer be what it is meant to be, which is a pillar and a buttress for the truth. So lastly, the text here says that deacons will gain great confidence in the faith. And this speaks of a boldness that the deacon will gain as they serve well. It's a reassurance for them that they're working faithfully and stewarding what God has given them. And this should embolden them to persevere and to continue to more and more faithful service. This is unlike the work of servants outside the Church of God, where there's no assurance of the impact that they're doing. But for the deacon in God's church, if he serves well, he has this great assurance. Because in the world, if you're doing the work of a diakonos, waiting tables, serving food, you might wonder if your work is of any lasting value or of any lasting consequence. But for the deacon in God's church, he can be confident that his work is not in vain. Christ will honor the deacon's faithful service so that he can be confident when the master returns, he will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. So, What does this have to do with you? If you don't hold the office of deacon, that you have just checked out for this entire sermon, it has everything to do with you. Because deacons are meant to lead as an example of what all of Christ's servants are to be like. Just because you're not a deacon or a deaconess does not mean that you're not called to service and to the character that we describe here today. It's not as if the elders are are tier one holiness, and then the deacons are tier two holiness, and then everybody else, you get tier three. No, there's only one tier. Christ is the tier, the only tier, and the tier that a gospel-transformed life is going to dictate. That includes everybody in the church, including you. In the gospel of Mark, Christ himself said, not just of deacons, but of everyone, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul specifically says that Christ provided for his church, giving the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip whom? That's right, to equip the saints, all of you, Christ redeemed, for the work of service, diakonias. The call to humble service must be exemplified and modeled by the deacons. But the call to humble service is something that our Lord calls all of us to as well. And as we talked about, it's not just a call to a task, but it's a call to a character. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord. You have laid it out for us in your word. And not only have you just given us pure...